This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. As David mentioned, we're coming out of COVID times. And if anything has taught us uh, about the interpersonal nature of the human person, it's COVID times. And unfortunately, that has often been learned through a negative sort of experience. Already in 2020, just months into the crisis, scientists were saying that the pandemic was having negative psychological and social effects on children because of isolation, mask wearing, etc. Now, whether one thinks that lockdowns and school closings and masks for children were necessary to prevent a greater risk to the physical lives of children and or adults, the scientific evidence is very strong that isolation, mask wearing, and so on have negative effects on children's psychology and growth. In March of this year, two years after the lockdown started, the World Health Organization released a study that stated, quote, that in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a massive 25%, end quote. The accompanying press release said, quote, one major explanation for the increase is the unprecedented stress caused by the social isolation resulting from the pandemic. That's not a surprising correlation for us these days. We're all hearing on university campuses and school institutions about a rise in mental health issues. That report of this year from the World Health Organization reporting just on the first year's data of the pandemic noted, quote, that the pandemic has affected the mental health of young people and women in particular. And when they said young people, they meant those aged 20 to 24, which is the age most especially of our university students. They noted too that these young persons are, quote, disproportionately at risk of suicidal and self-harming behaviors. What do we take from all this? It certainly underscores that we human beings are by nature communal beings. And on the spiritual plane, by our creation by God, we have an openness and an inclination to communion not just with other human beings, but also with God. Sin disrupted that communion between God and human beings. So God sent messengers, his prophets, his scriptures, in former times in order to lead us back to him. If you will, that was kind of like a virtual meeting, communication by text message or voicemail. But then going beyond virtual meetings, God became man as Jesus Christ in order to personally, in person, bring about communion between God and us by teaching us and saving us. That in-person meeting between Jesus Christ and us is not over, however. It continues in the Catholic sacraments in particular, the Eucharist, and that will be our focus today. I've been asked to speak about what's called the real presence and transubstantiation. And so as your um, handout indicates, the title for and the subject of today's uh, talk is My Flesh Indeed and the Real Presence of Christ in the Eucharist. As an opening working definition, the real presence is the affirmation that the Catholic Eucharist is a physical, authentically human presence to us, here and now, of Jesus Christ. 
This presence is mediated to us by what looks, tastes, smells, and acts externally like bread and wine. And that's a bit surprising. Nonetheless, Catholics affirm that this bread and wine are truly present at the beginning of the Mass, the ceremony of the Eucharist. But through the consecratory blessing of a priest, what was bread or wine no longer is such. Rather, through the externals, excuse me, though the externals of bread and wine remain, what is really physically there is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. What look and act like bread and wine are, after the consecration, not just spiritual signs of Jesus, like a postcard from a university friend who's away on a study abroad program, who's sending you a sign of his friendship. Rather, the Eucharist is also a physical presence, a real presence. As for our second subject for this talk, transubstantiation, that is the affirmation that how the Eucharistic real presence comes about is through a change of substance, a change from the substance of bread to the substance of the body of Christ, and a change of, uh, from the substance of wine to the substance of the blood of Christ. I'll go through this talk in a couple of stages. First, I'll give a presentation of the scriptural and dogmatic history of teaching about the real presence. Then, with the patron saint of the Thomistic Institute, I will explore St. Thomas Aquinas' theological explanation of the real presence and transubstantiation. And lastly, I'll offer some reflections on how these points uh, relate to how we receive the Eucharist and what we are to do with this gift. So let's look at the real presence in Scripture. I have up to this point been giving a kind of, well, I've, I presented a couple of minutes ago, a kind of theological exploration of how uh, we in our humanness and our body, bodiliness have benefited by God becoming man in Jesus Christ and extending physical presence to his gifts to us. That's a kind of philosophical, theological, anthropological argument for a real presence, a physical presence. But there's also a scriptural argument, a scriptural basis. We can see Eucharistic prefigurations in the Old Testament. Uh, we can look, for instance, at what's called the bread of the presence in Leviticus 24 or the book of Numbers, Exodus 25. We can see how the Lord nourished his people Israel with bread during the Passover and Exodus journey. We can look at the use of wine by Melchizedek in Genesis 14. We can look at what's called the Shekinah, the real presence, the divine presence to the Israelites at various points in their history and at various places of their history. So for instance, the presence on Mount Sinai where Moses goes up in order to have conversation with the Lord in a kind of uh, revelation moment, but a moment that has a physicality to it, to that place where the Lord's physicality showed by the thunder and the lightning and the cloud descending upon Mount Sinai. Or we can look at the presence of the Ark in uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of the Israelite people on their journey. Or the presence of the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. 
all of those are prefigurations for the real presence that Jesus will give us. He prepared us for this Eucharistic gift by speaking about himself in John 6, and a quotation that I've put on your handout, Jesus speaks about himself as the bread of life. So for instance, John 6, 50, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus speaks about himself here, continuing this bread of the presence notion from the past, from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. But Jesus goes further. He doesn't identify himself just as bread. He also identifies that we need to eat and drink his flesh and blood. Continuing on, uh, question, excuse me, not question, uh, verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat this, the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now this was a bit shocking for some of Jesus' interlocutors. And so if you continue in that passage from John 6, people say this is a hard saying. How can we accept this? How can we live this? And some indeed leave Jesus, following Jesus because of this teaching. And yet Jesus does not deny it, he insists upon it, and the apostles led by St. Peter say, yes, we do accept this, we will follow you, you have the words of eternal life. This was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would inaugurate, institute for us at the Last Supper, when Jesus gave the Eucharist definitively. The earliest account of that is from uh, the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 11, a quotation I've also put on your handout. I put it before the, the uh, quotation from John because it seems that uh, 1 Corinthians was written before St. John's Gospel. You see there uh, St. Paul saying, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And indeed, the disciples following upon the Lord's command to do this in, in remembrance of him did this. And we see this in the Acts of the Apostles. We see this in the letters of St. Paul. They lived the Eucharistic commandments in the apostolic period. That's a very quick overview of real presence in Scripture, from prefiguration uh, in the Old Testament to prefiguration in the New Testament, and then institution at the Last Supper and living in the apostolic period. That brings us into the history of the church, what could be called the real presence in church tradition in the church's life and thought. The Eucharist was understood to be the physical presence of Christ's body and blood from the beginning of the church's history. You can see reference to the Eucharist uh, already in the Didache, the first post-biblical Christian text written around the year 90. If we could fast forward a bit, though, a number of centuries, uh, 
whereas there's not much controversy about uh, the Eucharist's real presence in the first centuries of the church, it does become a source of questioning later on. And the central issue is this. If the Eucharist is Christ's body and blood, what do we do with the physical fact that the Eucharist, which we're proclaiming is Christ, tastes and feels and smells and acts like normal bread and wine? There seem to be two opposing truths being proposed. Christ versus what looks and tastes like bread and wine. So people began to wonder. And the wonderings became a significant challenge in the ninth century. There was a certain monk, St. Pascasius Libertus. I put uh, his name and uh, a couple of dates uh, at the bottom of page one for you. He affirmed uh, in his writings what is called bodily identity of the Eucharist, namely that what this Eucharist is equal to the Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered on the cross, and rose from the tomb. So it's the same Jesus throughout all of those moments and also in the Eucharist. So there's an identity, a same identity, an equal identity uh, between Jesus and the Eucharist. In response, Retramnus of Corby uh, made a distinction. He said, well, how is it that we can have Jesus in the Eucharist when Jesus has ascended into heaven? Uh, that seems rather surprising uh, to say that Jesus is ascended into heaven. We affirm that. How can we say that Jesus is here on earth in the Eucharist physically? So he made a distinction between truth and figure. He said that what we have in the Eucharist is a figurative presence of Jesus. Whereas Jesus in truth is in heaven. So he made a distinction between what Pascasius Robertus had done of saying there is identity between the Jesus of the Eucharist and the Jesus of heaven, as well as the Jesus who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago, or at his time, 800 and some years ago. But Retramnus, after Pascasius, made a division. And unfortunately, he used language that seemed to deny the concrete reality of Christ's presence in the Eucharist, focusing more on his figurative or symbolic presence. Certainly his language and distinctions were is insufficient for the time and insufficient for the Catholic belief, which was alive and well at that time, of the physical real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Fast forward a number of years, uh, Lanfranc of Beck issued some writings about the Eucharist that were pretty standard, affirming the real presence, the physical presence. Another scholar, Berengarius of Tours, reacted against Lanfranc and started a big brouhaha, uh, a very important brouhaha concerning the Eucharist's real presence. Berengarius, somewhat similar to Retramnus, insisted that the Eucharist is a symbol and a memorial of Jesus, as opposed to being a physical presence, equal in identity to the Jesus who walked on the earth and the Jesus who now is in heaven, ascended at the right hand of the Father. Berengarius insisted that 
after the consecration of the mass, the bread and wine remain. And what only occurs is a, a kind of power or value that's added to the bread and wine, such that uh, those who in faith approach the Eucharist are able to have a spiritual connection with the risen, ascended Christ in heaven. But what is physically present at the Mass after the consecration is not the body and blood of Jesus in truth, but just a symbol. So as I put on my handout there, he seemed, he, he, he used ambiguous language in order to kind of cover his tracks because he got in trouble very quickly, as we'll talk about. Uh, but he seemed to hold that the Eucharist is a symbol of what's called impanation. Uh, I'll talk about what that is in a minute. And um, in response to Berengarius, the magisterium responded very quickly within Berengarius's life with a number of condemnations. And the swiftness of the condemnations against Berengarius testifies to the widespread, widespread depth of Christian belief in the real presence of the Eucharist. So already in 1059, Berengarius was called to account and asked to um, profess uh, Catholic faith in the Eucharist in a particular formula, uh, affirming that what we have in the Eucharist is not just uh, some sort of subjective uh, impartment on our parts, saying, okay, yes, I recognize there's something there, some spiritual presence of Jesus, but objectively affirming that what we have there, apart from our subjective realization, is indeed the body and blood of Christ. And the first articulation of um, the Synod of Rome in 1059 presents this Eucharistic uh, real presence in rather stark terms, rather physicalist terms. So if you look at it on page two at the top, he says, I, Berenger, I Berenger, knowing the truth and apostolic faith, anathematize all heresy, etc., etc. He says he affirms belief in the Eucharist, saying it's not only a sacrament, um, but here I'm in my passage, uh, that the Eucharist is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's touched and broken by the hands of priests and ground by the teeth of the faithful. Um, we're continuing on. He affirms that the bread and wine that are placed on the altar after the consecration are not only a sacrament, so not only, for instance, a figure, uh, like Retramus said, but also the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that they are sensibly, not only in sacrament, but in truth, touched and broken by the hands of priests and ground by the teeth of the faithful. It's a kind of a very strong, stark uh, affirmation of the real presence. In this, there's also a doctrinal articulation that the Eucharist is Christ's body and blood alone. There's not at the same time, notice, bread and body, not wine and blood. It's only body and blood. There's no commingling, we could say, between the bread and the body, the wine and the blood. But that very physicalist language of 1059 uh, raise some questions. 
people wonder, well, how do we how do we understand this physicality again? Because of the truth that Christ is also in heaven right now. So how can we be, as it says there, grinding with our teeth, the body of Christ? So in 1079, Berengarius, who continued to promote his ideas, uh, Berengarius was called to account again and uh, forced to sign another uh, profession of faith. Here, if we look at the language, it's different. It's still insisting upon the real presence, the physical presence of Christ, but that kind of grinding with the teeth language is not there. Uh, so let's read this one. I, bearing in my heart, believe and with my lips confess that through the mystery of the sacred prayer and the words of our Redeemer, the bread and wine that are placed on the altar are substantially changed into the true and proper and living flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that after consecration, it is the true body of Christ that was born of the Virgin, and that offered for the salvation of the world was suspended on the cross, and that sits at the right hand of the Father and the true blood of Christ, which was poured out from his side, not only through the sign and power of the sacrament, but in its very nature and in the truth of its substance. And he's, as you continue there with the last sentence, you see, you see there's nothing there about that uh, the body of Christ is held in the hands of priests and ground by the teeth of the faithful. They kind of just soften the tone of the language there a bit. But it's still a very strong affirmation uh, that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. And notice the language of identity uh, that we had seen earlier uh, with um, uh, Pascasius Robertus, that the Jesus of the Eucharist is the same Jesus, the same bodily presence as what was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered on the cross, and has risen from the dead. From all this, by the end of the 11th century, there were a number of theories that were out there, at least that had been enunciated, uh, about Eucharistic presence and about the conversion that occurs at the Mass. And I've tried to lay them out at the bottom of page two after, the, uh, after another quotation from the Council uh, Lateran IV. Uh, the first theory is that there is no physical presence of Christ. This is kind of a symbolic or spiritualist uh, understanding, saying that the bread and wine are just symbols of Christ. Impanation is an idea that bread, wine, and Christ are all physically present, but one is in the other, so impanation, the Christ is in the bread, or in the wine, or vice versa. Companation is the idea that bread and wine and Christ are all physically present, but side by side. So the bread of, uh, is there at the same time that the body of Christ is there, side by side. And companation was understood to take place through what's called consubstantiation. So the substance of Christ's body would be there at the same time as the substance of, uh, of the bread. And then the last theory is called real presence, or known as real presence. It's the idea that Christ is physically present after uh, the Mass is celebrated, or after the priest's consecratory words. And after Christ is physically present, there is no longer presence, bread and wine, substantially. And the theory, the explanation, the term for that Eucharistic conversion is transubstantiation. Dogmatically, 
Transubstantiation came into the language of the church at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, which is the last uh, long quotation I've given to you on page two, uh, after the synods of 1059 and 1079, where, as you see there, and I put some of the Latin in there just to kind of bring it out more starkly, it's affirmed that Christ's body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the appearances, the species of bread and wine, the bread being transubstantiated into the body by the divine power and the wine into the blood to the effect that we receive from what is his what he has received from what is ours, humanity, in order that the mystery of unity may be accomplished. One further thing that I'll note uh, in terms of medieval history that occurs is we start receiving uh, what can be called Eucharistic miracles. Uh, a famous example is in Lanciano, Italy in the early 700s. What happens here is it seems there was a priest who doubted the real presence of uh, Christ in the Eucharist and as he is celebrating Mass, what was bread literally turns into bleeding flesh. Uh, to underscore that this is the physical flesh of Christ, the body of Christ. And so the priest recognizing that came to believe. But these Eucharistic miracles of which there have been continuing uh, experiences of these, so I put on your handout uh, a recent example of Buenos Aires uh, in 1992, 1994, 1996, for which Pope Francis when he was Cardinal Archbishop uh, of Buenos Aires in Argentina was involved in uh, getting uh, these uh, cases investigated. And then Tixla in Mexico in 2006 is another example. These sorts of Eucharistic miracles where the bread literally turns into flesh as we understand our flesh of our bodies uh, to exist uh, underscores the reality of the real presence. How are we best to understand this real presence? We turn now to St. Thomas Aquinas' theological account. Thomas has a vision of the entire Eucharistic dynamic. I've tried to sketch that out in this chart that I put at the top of page three of your handout. Uh, the Eucharist is a rather complex sacrament. All of the sacraments have a complexity to them. Uh, in general, though, they work by physical signs and gestures and words that then bring about spiritual effects. So for, for us to understand uh, this chart, we have to start at the bottom left and work our way to the top right. If you will, we're kind of mounting up the hill, we're going up uh, in divine status with divine activity, which actually is occurring throughout this, but. God is kind of bringing us up, elevating us up, sanctifying us in grace through this process. So in the Eucharist, there is what's called the matter of the sacrament, bread and wine, uh, which are consecrated in the sacramental form. If one uh, has a background in Aristotelian philosophy, natural philosophy, one can see we're talking about matter and form. There's kind of hylomorphic theory here going on. Don't worry about it if you don't uh, know about basically what's going on is the priest's consecration uh, with the words, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, work in conjunction with the signification of the bread and wine, 
to then bring about the real presence, which is the second step, if you will, to step up this hill, step up this ladder. The real presence here again is the stable, uh, physical presence of Christ to us in the signs of what looks like and acts like and tastes like bread and wine. And then together, those two steps lead us to a third step, the grace of nourishment that is given to us uh, through this Eucharistic action, this Eucharistic uh, action at Mass and Eucharistic real presence. Uh, that nourishment, that communion with Christ, uh, gives us union as well with his mystical body, the Church. So this is why we talk about the Eucharist as the sacrament of charity. Because the Eucharist brings about charity, union, communion between Christ and us, and Christ with all of his members, uh, the members of the church, and other human members of the church, and the saints and the angels. So that's kind of like the big picture of what's going on with the Eucharist. For the purposes of our uh, talk this evening, we're looking at that middle part, the real presence, and secondly, how we get there. So the, the, the kind of the first small little arrow of how we get from what's called the exterior sign, the sacramentum tantum in Latin, the priest consecration of the bread and wine that bring about the real presence. That arrow, if, we, if, we, if I could put that in, if I could add to my drawing, that arrow would be transubstantiation in terms of how that occurs, that process. Let's look at how Thomas explored uh, and understood these two facts, the real presence and then the process of getting to the real presence, transubstantiation. First, let's look at the real presence. That's kind of the first step. There is an, there is an order to how these things were understood uh, in the history of the church. The real presence came first, and then uh, an understanding of transubstantiation came afterward. In terms of the real presence, Thomas affirms it, and he asks, how do we know that the real presence uh, is the real presence? Thomas, interestingly enough, um, he makes an act of faith and says we have to take the real presence as an act of faith that cannot be proven in a straight deductive fashion. We have to take it based upon the testimony of scripture, he says. So he quotes, for instance, John 6. He quotes the institution of the Eucharist in the uh, book of Luke, uh, excuse me, the, the Gospel of Luke. But then he gives various reasons why it would be fitting that God would give us the real presence. So these are called reasons of conveniencia, reasons of fitting us why God would do this. The first reason St. Thomas gives for the real presence as fitting is that insofar as God makes himself present in various let's say virtual fashions or figurative fashions in the Old Testament. The New Testament, the new law of grace of the gospel should be better and therefore God should give himself not just in figure but also in truth, a kind of higher perfection. And so Thomas reasons that the Eucharist should be not just the figure but also the truth the identity of Jesus Christ as he had been incarnated many years prior. We see the same sort of dynamic as what we saw with Pascasius Robertus. Question of identity, but then taking the language of the Tranmus, pitting figure and 
truth, but kind of putting it on its head and saying, well, okay, there was figure in the past. For instance, God working in the presence uh, of the showbread or the Shekinah with the Israelites and saying, well, that was, that was a kind of presence. It was a kind of figurative presence. But Christ in the Eucharist gives us something more. It gives us the truth. A second reason St. Thomas uh, gives for the fittingness of the real presence is by underscoring that there's a kind of friendship here, a friendship that God wants to extend to us by, insofar as friends want to be with friends, they make themselves physically present. I made reference earlier to how a friend on a study abroad program could send you a postcard, and that's nice, but wouldn't you prefer to be physically present with your friend? St. Thomas says, Eucharist is kind of like that. The real presence is God physically present to us and not just giving a kind of uh, presence by his power or by his words, for instance, as in scripture. I'm going to come back to this actual text at the end of my talk because it's so beautiful. And the last reason St. Thomas gives for the real presence is he says we need a certain test in our faith. And it's a test of our faith to recognize that the Eucharist is not just uh, a presence, a spiritual presence of God, but also that Christ's humanity is there. So in the Eucharist, beyond physical appearances, we have to believe that Christ's body and blood are there, just as in general we have to believe in Christ's unseen divinity. If we understand or if we accept the real presence of the Eucharist, the fact remains, though, that we have to put and keep together various elements. And St. Thomas is sensitive to this. So how is it that we affirm the ascension of Jesus Christ, the fact that Christ rose bodily into heaven from this earth at the end of his lifetime ministry here, after his resurrection? How do we affirm that truth at the same time that we affirm the truth of the Eucharistic real presence? Or how do we affirm the real presence at the same time that we recognize as scientists, we could say, the ongoing presence of what looks like bread and wine. So for instance, when Catholics receive communion, they actually go up and they taste what tastes like bread when they receive Holy Communion. Or uh, if we can kind of get even starker in, in a way, something that's been thrown against Catholics for many centuries, Thomas even raises the question, well, if Catholics are receiving that communion of what seems to taste like bread or wine, but is affirmed to be the body and blood of Christ, how is that not cannibalism? How is that a sacred moment? How is this a sacramental and holy moment and not a sacrilegious moment? That's going to lead us to a distinction between substance and accidents and lead us to a question of what is substantial presence. The use of a distinction between substance and accidents is not original to Aquinas. Uh, and much of what I'm presenting to you from Aquinas is not actually original to Aquinas. Aquinas' genius is really bringing together many threads and many elements uh, into one coherent uh, and elaborate understanding. The first person, it seems, who used a distinction between substance and accidents is on the bottom of your 
handout page one, Guitman of Aversa in the 11th century, so two centuries before St. Thomas, is the first to use a dis this distinction of substance and accents. But we should ask first, what is substance and accents? What are these things? Uh, the language of substance and accents goes back to Aristotle. It's something seen from a philosophical reading of nature, seeing how natural things change and trying to account for that change. So for instance, all of us were much smaller at one point as babies. We've grown up and we can walk and talk now. We say at the same time, our parents affirm to us, yes, here are your baby pictures. We love you so much then. You were so cute then, but now look how wonderful you are now. And you're five feet taller than you were. So substantially, we'd say we are the same persons, but we have grown. Our quantity has changed. Uh, perhaps those of us who are a bit older, uh, we are now kind of on the other side of the hill, and we're not necessarily growing in all of the ways we do when we're youth, youthful. Now perhaps our hair is changing from brown to gray. That would be another sort of accidental change. The same person, the same man or woman, the same substance of a human being, but we've got a change going on. Or how do we account for it that uh, there are persons uh, of different heights, uh, persons with different abilities. Uh, are we all the same species? We'd say, yes, we're all the same species. We're all the same. We all possess the substance of humanity. Or how do we make sense of, for instance, if, uh, without getting into any politics about what we should be eating in the dining halls or whatever else, but let's say, Let's say someone wants to be a vegetarian, so they eat some lettuce. Well, that lettuce was growing. It was happily living out in some farm someplace as lettuce, and then it gets eaten by us. Well, what happens? Well, the lettuce gets substantially changed. It becomes us. The lettuce ceases to exist. Or let's say that there was some cow that was eating some lettuce or whatever cows eat, out in the farms, and then voila, all of a sudden, we're at a New York steakhouse. <laughs> and the New York steak becomes part of us. That cow has gone through a substantial change. And we might get a bit fatter through having our nice New York steak, our wonderful uh, salad, and we get a bit bigger. Have we changed substantially? No, we've changed accidentally. We've changed in terms of size, but we're still the same Joe or Jane. I bring all this up because when we get to the Eucharist, this language of substance and accidents helps to account for what's going on, and St. Thomas helps to bring uh, this out with respect to the real presence. Thomas says when we're talking about the real presence, we really need to focus on substance. We need to focus on substance as opposed to accidents. So as I put on your handout there, there are different kinds of presence, different kinds of, we could say, um, well, let's just say different types of presence. So St. Thomas will make a distinction between substantial or sacramental presence as compared to what's, what he will term dimensive or quantitative or proper presence. Substantial presence is to say that, okay, 
there can be in a particular space, physical space, the presence of a substance. So normally when we think about ourselves, we think, okay, I am standing in this place. Who I am, my substantial presence, is localized in this place. I can say that there's a physical presence, a dimensive presence, a 3D presence, three-dimensional presence, I can say, in myself, but there's also a substantial presence. But is it possible for a substantial presence to be in a place, even though its three-dimensional aspect is not also there? That's the distinction that needs to be made with respect to the Eucharist. So the affirmation of the Eucharist is to say that Christ's substantial presence is there, for instance, in uh, the hosts of the Mass or after the consecration. So for instance, as we talk about Catholics reverence the consecrated hosts in of the tabernacle, there's a difference for what's going on in the tabernacle compared to the wonder bread that you'd buy uh, at the grocery store. What we have there is a substantial presence that is different than Christ's dimensive or quantitative or proper presence in heaven or the proper presence that Christ had walking the earth 2,000 years ago. This substantial presence for St. Thomas is also called a sacramental presence because our substantial presence of the real presence of the Eucharist is mediated by sacramental signs. So the substance of Christ is tied to something that we can physically touch and see and smell. That would be the signs of what was bread and wine. So for Thomas, to understand the real presence, we have to think in terms of substance. We have to focus on substance. But in terms of how we get there, we need to think about the Eucharistic conversion. How does the real presence come about? And that leads us to the teaching on transubstantiation. First, we have the belief in the real presence, but then we have to get to a belief in how that comes about. That leads to belief in transubstantiation. Similar to the distinction between substance and accents with respect to the Eucharist, uh, antedating St. Thomas, the language of transubstantiation also antedates St. Thomas. I pointed out already with the latter on the four, um, page two of your handout, how the language is first used dogmatically in 1215. Theologically, it first gets used around the year 1140, so roughly almost 100 years before it's used dogmatically. It's first used by a guy named Robert Poulos in Paris. Uh, you don't need to know that. It's not going to be on the quiz or, or the exam afterward. Uh, note, this is 1140 before the widespread introduction of Aristotelian, a reintroduction of Aristotelian philosophy. What's going on with transubstantiation, according to St. Thomas, is the best explanation that we have for the Eucharistic real presence. And the way that St. Thomas uh, explains it, and the way that the church has kind of come to understanding transubstantiation, is in by distinction to the other options that were available. And those other options were what I put on the end of page two, the theories of impanation or companation, the idea, or symbolic presence. The idea that 
for instance, bread and wine exist simultaneously with uh, the body and blood of Christ. So by process of elimination, the other theories were deemed uh, impossible, and that leads to a conclusion in favor of transubstantiation as the explanation for uh, the real presence and the conversion that occurs toward the real presence. Thomas gives a number of proofs for uh, transubstantiation. He begins with a kind of philosophical proof saying that the conditions for the introduction of a substance into a particular place necessitate that um, what we have in the Eucharist is only the uh, substantial presence of Christ without the simultaneous presence of uh, bread or wine. He says basically that two physical things cannot be in the same place at the same time. So uh, if you're playing, I don't know, dodgeball, uh, and you're in a circle, and the ball is being thrown at you, you want to get out of the space of the, do of the ball, you want to dodge the ball so that you miss getting hit by the ball. If you try to occupy the same space that the ball wants to occupy, you're going to get hit, and depending on the upon the velocity of the ball, you're going to hurt. You're going to get hit and hurt. So two things cannot, two physical things cannot be in the same place at the same time. So St. Thomas says, well, that's the case as well for the Eucharist. If we've got bread, we can't also have a physical presence of uh, the body of Christ there at the same time. He says, if there were, that would happen, we'd see some sort of locomotion. We'd see Christ ascending somehow. It doesn't make sense. He says, that doesn't work. So that's a philosophical proof, he says. A better proof that he gives, uh, frankly, in my estimation, uh, is a kind of liturgical proof by the consecration formula for the Mass, which I put on your handout, what's called the sacrament of form. So for the consecration of the bread to become the, the uh, body of Christ, uh, in today's Mass, we say in these United States, take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you. And the crucial line especially is, this is my body. Or for the consecration of the wine to become the precious blood of Christ, take this all of you and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. Crucial lines there are, this is my body and this is the chalice of my blood. We're going to explore those a bit later. Um, but for St. Thomas, it, Christ says, this is my body, not this is bread and my body. And so Thomas understands that Christ needs to be taken literally. Scripture needs to be taken seriously. And if Christ said, this is my body, he meant it. A third proof St. Thomas will give against uh, the simultaneous presence of um, bread and wine in the Eucharist is by a kind of moral proof. He says, we Catholics led by the Holy Spirit, give the worship of Latria to the, to the Eucharist. Latria is reserved uh, for worship only to God. And we could not give this to the Eucharist if we were bowing down and genuflecting simultaneously to bread or wine. We worship only God. We do not mix things up. We do not commingle our worship. 
final proof uh, may seem uh, rather strange for us modern persons, um, but St. Thomas will give us a, another liturgical proof for why there's only uh, the body and blood of Christ uh, in the Eucharist, a substantial change from bread and wine. He says, because if we also had bread and wine in the Eucharist when we're receiving the Eucharist, we would be breaking the Eucharistic fast by having bread and wine at the same time that we would be receiving Holy Communion. And for us nowadays, when people perhaps are a bit more cavalier about fasting before receiving Holy Communion, that seems a bit kind of small. But at St. Thomas's time, following upon a certain scriptural uh, uh, teaching from St. Paul, it was the understanding that one cannot receive Holy Communion uh, on any particular day if one had eaten or drunk anything after midnight. That only changes uh, in the 20th century uh, in terms of that uh, um, practice of the faith. So St. Thomas's conclusion uh, is that no way can be assigned whereby Christ's true body and blood can begin to be in the sacrament except by the change of the substance of bread into the body and the substance of wine into the blood of Christ. So he's eliminated the possibility of uh, consubstantiation or impanation, the idea that bread and wine are simultaneously uh, there with the body and blood of Christ. But then let's explore a bit further how transubstantiation occurs, let's say by analogy, how uh, the mechanics work. Here we remember that the sacraments effect what they signify. So the sacraments are signs, gestures, and words, and actions that bring about a spiritual reality, bring about grace. So with respect to the Eucharist, as I put at the top of page three, there is bread and wine, which signify uh, various things. We don't have time right now to get into what exactly they signify, but they signify, for instance, life and happiness, uh, joy. And the priest's consecratory words spoken uh, in conjunction with that physical presence of bread and wine saying, this is my body, this is the chalice of my blood, that brings about the real presence. If to understand the real presence, physical presence of Christ, Thomas's kind of important uh, key idea is to say, focus on the substance. It seems that with respect to understanding transubstantiation, Thomas's key idea is to say, focus on the form. Focus on what the words say. So for all of you who ever had to go through uh, grade school or middle school where you had English teachers that were very strict about paying attention to the grammar and diagramming sentences and getting the meanings just right, St. Thomas takes words and grammar seriously. He takes words as actually conveying truth and in a sacred context, bringing about uh, sacred realities. So Thomas will take the, the line, this is my body, and say, well, if Christ said that, if Christ has empowered the priest to use that for the conversion of what was bread to be the body of Christ, the real body of Christ, we take that literally. So this means, this is kind of a, a difficult, this can have a shifting meaning, let's just say that. 
but what, what at the end of the conversion, what we're going to have is my body. Whose body? Christ's body. And that's with respect to the sacramental sign of what was bread. And then for the body, excuse me, for the blood of Christ, this is the chalice of my blood. At the beginning we have uh, wine, at the end we have blood. But as a grammarian, as a serious thinker about words, Thomas says, notice that the verb to be is used in the present tense. So this is my body. Well, how does Christ's body exist now? Christ's body exists now such that he is risen and ascended into heaven. Uh, Christ's body is the body assumed by the person of the word. It is a living body. It's not a dead body. So we have in the Eucharist what is called the whole Christ, the totus Christus. So if we have the substance of the body of Christ, that actually means we have the body and blood, the human soul, and the divinity of Christ together. We have the whole Christ, the total Christ. How we have that whole Christ uh, is known by a technical term, concomitance. It's uh, another kind of, um, if I can just break it apart in the Latin very easily, literally it means that associates are coming along with the main person or the main body. So we're talking about the body of Christ, the flesh of Christ. Everything that is involved with the living flesh comes along with it. So if we have the real presence of Christ's flesh, and because that flesh is living, we therefore have blood, and in Christ's uh, situation, soul and divinity. I've also tried in diagram format to uh, put Eucharistic transubstantiation into a chart fashion. Uh, this is this should be taken perhaps with a grain of salt. I, I am the first to uh, confirm that I do not have great artistic abilities. But what we're trying to uh, explore with St. Thomas is that what we have in Eucharistic transformation in terms of bread changes to be the body of Christ, whereas in terms of the accidents, those externals, which normally are linked to an underlying substance, so bread tastes like bread. There's a bready accident, if you will. It's different than what an orange tastes like. It's different than what a steak tastes like. So the bread accidents remain. So moving through the process of transubstantiation, the bread accidents remain. But there's no substance of bread anymore. That is over. So we don't say that there's bread anymore. And yet we have to make sense of these that breadiness that we taste when we taste the Eucharist, or the wininess, the wineness of uh, the precious blood if we receive under the species of precious blood. How do we explain that? Normally, the accidents, normally the fact that my hair is starting to turn white is able to exist because of the substance of who I am. And normally the breadiness taste of bread is able to, as I put there, inhere in the bread substance. But then with Eucharistic transformation, 
transubstantiation, Thomas says that the substance of bread changes into or is changed into the body of Christ, the substance of the body of Christ. But the bread accidents persist. How so? Thomas says by miraculous divine power. Those accidents just exist. There are all sorts of crazy and um, very speculative ideas about how the accidents continue to exist. How does, for instance, the breadiness or the color or the, or the, the, the size or the shape, how does it exist? Some people said, well, it's, it's, it's connected with the air. That was a literal idea, like connecting things with the air or with some other substance. Thomas said, no, no, it's the easiest explanation to say it's a, it's a miracle, which seems kind of complex to us, but maybe it is the simplest explanation, philosophically and theologically. For the sake of time, let me uh, speed up with some of the further sections that I have planned. Um, if we think about what's going on with Eucharistic presence, the fact that Christ is physically, truly, substantially present to us in the Eucharist, it also requires a priestly presence that is also physical and in person. The Eucharist cannot come about except through Christ's Catholic priests, men that he has configured to himself so that they can literally do what Christ enjoined the apostles when he told them at the institution of the Eucharist, do this in memory of me. So as we've been living through COVID times, many people have, unfortunately, as I talked about at the beginning of the talk, they have felt cut off socially from others, physically from others. And Catholics, in a very serious way, have experienced the loss of their social connection in the church. And I would say, as a priest, priests have also felt cut off from their people, precisely because there is an important way that we as Catholics, and it seems God in this, the way he wants to save us, wants to bind priests and people together. And one of the ways we see that is with respect to the Eucharist. But the Eucharist's physical presence can only come about through the physical presence of priests. It's amazing, it's a, it's a marvel to think how God has used ordinary men to bring about such an awesome gift as the Eucharist. And indeed, we should think about this marvelous gift, not just of the priesthood, but of the Eucharist. And we recognize how God has saved us spiritually through physical, incarnational means. The Eucharist is an extension of Christ. The fact that God has come into the world and is spreading his salvation to all times and places, not just localized in the Holy Land, 2,000 years ago, but spreading out throughout the world. In a sense, sacraments are part of Christ's missionary journey, of which the Jesuit fathers are excellent examples. And through this, Christians have adored and reverenced the Eucharist uh, in many different ways, reserving the Eucharist in our tabernacles, in our churches, both for the giving of Holy Communion to those who are sick or those who are not able to come to Mass, but also uh, in order so that we can worship the Lord Jesus present among us physically. We see this contact between the physical sacraments and our spiritual salvation throughout the history of the church. And I'd like to close with this marvelous wonder that we have of the, how the physical and the spiritual work together. Tertullian, who was a father of the church, has a really kind of wonderful way, kind of a 
very witty way of, of saying this quotation I put at the top of page four of your handout. He says, the flesh is the very condition on which salvation hinges. And since the soul is, in consequence of its salvation, chosen to the service of God, it is the flesh which actually renders it capable of such service. The flesh indeed is washed in baptism in order that the soul may be cleansed. The flesh is anointed in baptism and in confirmation that the soul may be consecrated. The flesh is signed with the cross that the soul too may be fortified. The flesh is shadowed with the imposition of hands that the soul also may be illuminated by the spirit. The flesh feeds on the body and blood of Christ the soul likewise may fatten on its God. So God works with us in these sacramental physical ways to bring about our spiritual transformation. In the Eucharist, as Tertullian says there, uh, probably around 200 to 225, the flesh feeds, we feed on the body and blood of Christ, that the soul likewise may fatten on God. So Thomas, when he thought about this, he placed this within the context of friendship, in the context of charity. He has two wonderful um, passages about the union of Christ uh, and uh, the Catholic believer in the Eucharist. Uh, in the two final quotations that I put on your handout. The first one I made reference to earlier when I, when I was going through the arguments that St. Thomas gives for the fittingness of the real presence of Christ. And I said that the second argument, the second reason that St. Thomas gives is because of friendship. Here's the quotation that he gives. This is my favorite quotation of all of St. Thomas uh, in all of his writings, so I, I cannot uh, hesitate to bring it out when I'm talking about the Eucharist in the talk. Thomas says that the truth that the Eucharist is Christ's true body and blood and not just a figure, quote, belongs to Christ's love, out of which for our salvation he assumed the true body of our nature. So the incarnation, 2,000 years ago. He continues, and because it is a special feature of friendship to live together with friends, as the philosopher Aristotle says, he promises us his bodily presence as a reward, saying where the body is, the body of Christ is, there shall the eagles, ye, be gathered together. Yet meanwhile, in our pilgrimage, he does not deprive us of his bodily presence, but unites us with himself in this sacrament through the truth of his body and blood. Hence he says, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, from John 6, which we looked at the beginning of this talk. Hence this sacrament is the sign of supreme charity and the uplifter of our hope from such familiar union of Christ with us. What a beautiful statement. Christ, as our friend, wants to be in person with us physically. Postcards are great, but an in-person party is so much better. What kind of party is this? Is this a somber party? Is this a kind of a very staid party? Doesn't seem so, according to St. Thomas. The final quotation I put in your handout. Thomas is looking at how the Eucharist builds us up in charity. He says, quote, This sacrament confers grace spiritually together with the virtue of charity. Hence, St. John Damascene compares this sacrament to the burning coal which Isaiah saw. For a live ember is not simply wood, but wood united to fire. 
So also the bread of communion is not simple bread, but bread united with the Godhead. But as Gregory observes in a homily for Pentecost, God's love is never idle. For wherever it is, it does great works. Suggestion of kind of like the burningness of the Eucharist grace of charity within us. Thomas continues, and consequently, through this sacrament, as far as its power is concerned, not only is the habit of grace and of virtue bestowed, but it is further aroused to act. According to 2 Corinthians, the charity of Christ presses us. Hence it is that the soul is spiritually nourished through the power of the sacrament by being spiritually gladdened, and as it were, inebriated with the sweetness of the divine goodness. According to the book of Canticles 5, eat, O friends, and drink, and be inebriated, my dearly beloved. Christ revealed his Eucharistic real presence to us in his teaching and inaugurated it at his Last Supper. Catholics have been living this Eucharistic mystery for 2,000 years. Through long, hard experience and theological reflection, we've seen how the real presence is best understood as a substantial sacramental presence. The substance of the whole Christ mediated through the sacramental signs of what was bread and wine. We've learned how Christ's substantial presence is brought about through transubstantiation. Blessed by the physical presence of Christ's Catholic priests, we are further blessed by the greater presence of Christ himself in the Eucharist. We are thus able to worship our true God in spirit and truth. Thanks be to God for this supreme charity, this generosity of extending his earthly, friendly presence among us. And St. Thomas quotes the scriptures, Eat, O friends, and drink. Be inebriated with the sweetness of the divine goodness. Thank you for your attention this evening. I don't know if we want to do questions and answers if we have time. But There's I'm, plenty of time for questions. Okay. I, I'm game if you wish to uh, ask any questions. Uh, it's something I've been wondering for a long time. Uh, Catholics like to fall back on um, talking this stereotype that we don't pay attention to scripture mm -hmm. by saying we're the ones that do pay attention to Jesus saying this is my body uh, but it seems that the reason that the Protestants wouldn't take that so seriously is that they think Christ was just speaking a metaphor there mm -hmm. and it seems that he did often say things that didn't actually happen in the form of Good question. Good question. Uh, a couple of things. I so the so the question is why is this? Why do we take this literally and not metaphorically? Uh, a couple of things. Um, one, if we look at uh, just the passage from John six, which is uh, probably the the starkest example that you're bringing up. So Christ has the very physical language. He eats my or, uh, my flesh is is uh, food indeed and drink indeed. Uh, we must eat his flesh and we must drink his blood. And then if we think just of the drama that's going on here, of Jesus speaking about this to the crowd and the disciples, uh, if we go to verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. You can listen to it. And if Jesus 
uh, were thinking that this was just metaphorical. You know, it's kind of like this is pious language, and this, I'm just kind of doing like a parable here, guys. Uh, you know, don't don't take me too literally. He could have walked it back. He could have said he could have made a course correction, or he could have he could have clarified things, because it's obvious they're asking questions, and oftentimes Jesus knows what people are thinking already. Here, it seems that they're speaking out loud, and Jesus. If we continue to verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, "Do you take offense at this?" Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending, etc., etc.? Uh, some uh, Protestant critics will say the next line suggests a metaphorical um, uh, intention. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. They say, oh, that means okay, this whole Eucharist thing is, is just spirit and not flesh. Um, he says, this words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Well, again, uh, it seems to be no, we have to understand Jesus' prior words with the aid of the Spirit and not take them in uh, a kind of human, fallen, uh, fleshly way to say, you know, that's too disgusting. Jesus couldn't possibly mean uh, that we are supposed to take his, uh, uh, eat his body and drink his blood. Uh, kind of a disbelief, a kind of a human, fleshly disbelief. And also, if one continues to the further lines, uh, the the worst line of scripture, in a certain, well, among um, among tough lines of scripture is is John six sixty six 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 six, where Jesus where, where it says, after this, many of his disciples drew back, and no longer went about with him. So even if Jesus is saying, you know, take that you need to take this. Uh, with the Spirit, well, obviously um, they understand, and Jesus, there's plenty of time to clarify. Uh, they are rejecting Jesus' teaching uh, about flesh and blood. And then, thankfully, Peter answers up. Uh, in response to all this, Jesus is told by Peter, You have the words of eternal life. So we would say, if you look at the whole drama, so on a scriptural level, if you look at the whole drama of John 6, Jesus uh, is, seems clear that he's talking about a fleshly, physical presence. Excuse me, a, a physical, fleshly presence, not just a spiritual presence. Uh, furthermore, in the scriptures, we could look at the other uh, instances in the Pauline letters. Uh, Eucharist seems to also refer to in the uh, letter to the Hebrews. Um, and then we can go into the life of the church after uh, the scriptures. Reading them and reading history in continuity with what happens with the apostles, and we see the beliefs and uh, testimonies of what can be called church tradition with respect to the uh, physicality of the real presence. That it's not just a spiritual presence. So I think scripture and tradition should be seen as working in harmony uh, in this instance, as in every instance. Very good, Patrick. David? One more question. Father, well, come I, on. I wanted to first say you excuse me for a question, so um, I'm happy to defer. But I do have a question, especially given your um, expertise in the sacramental theology of the Congress. Well, unless any eager beavers want to get in ahead of you, Father, I think you've got the floor. 
So um, I wanted to even just talk a little bit about the um, the chart you have here, not specifically the chart, but more the doctrine that concerns. Which chart, the top um, one or the on, bottom one? On page three. No, which the top or the, the top or the bottom one? The, the top. The okay, bottom. the bottom one. Yeah, just looking at that. Okay. Um, so one of the interesting things is we obviously have miracles going on here, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And one of the miracles is that you have accidents in theory of the substance that no longer exist, mm -hmm. namely the bread accidents or the wine accidents in theory in wine, in what was once wine and what was once bread, yes. but which are no longer present. So that seems to be a miracle, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's also the miracle of changing the bread into the body and blood and the wine into the body and blood. So you have two, two miracles at least, right? Mm -hmm. Or or, or or a simultaneous miracle. Simultaneous. Yeah. Or, or, or just one miracle that's doing both things. Either, either way, however you describe it. Go ahead. But keep yes, so no, my, my, my just drawing attention is that it seems then that uh, you, you have the miracle of the change itself, and then you have the miracle of accidents that are inherent in the substance that has been completely transformed. And this seems like you have at least two miracles. Yes. Uh, I think we could describe it either as one miracle or two miracles, however, however we want to kind of parse it out. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, partly because, so the, the conversion, mm -hmm. so what you're describing as one miracle, mm -hmm. uh, is, it, it's, it's the, the term, so in terms of the transubstantiation, the term, uh, the, the final term, the end, the end point, is for an ongoing presence. It's not as if, contrary to what Luther, for instance, said later, a couple hundred years later, uh, that the Eucharist presence uh, is just for the time of the Mass. And once Mass is over, uh, no more Eucharistic presence. Uh, the understanding for the Eucharistic presence is know that so long as the, the, the sacramental signs exist, there is an objective, not merely subjective, real presence. Uh, so it's it's not a it's a it's a perm it's a uh, it can change. So the Eucharistic presence can be lost, but until the sacramental signs change, it's a it's an ongoing permanent presence. So as long as you have that, insofar as that is as you identified a miracle, you also have what is either Part of that miracle, the fact that the bread accidents uh, uh, exist by miraculous divine power, or it's just part of the first miracle. It's just part of the, the uh, continuing presence, permanence of the transubstantiation. And in this uh, respect, in terms of this uh, part of this language of inherence, uh, since uh, you mentioned, Father, that your expertise is Bonaventure. Mm -hmm. Here is an example where St. Thomas learned from St. Bonaventure. So this, this language of, um, there was a dispute among the theologians, how, how is it that uh, Eucharistic accidents, the, the bread accidents or the wine accidents, how is it uh, that they exist? Various theories are being floated around. There are questions about, well, how does this work with what we're learning from Aristotle? In terms of accidents, normally here in or accidents in here in uh, substances, people are saying, well, from what Aristotle says, 
Accidents always inhere and only inhere in substances. But something that um, St. Thomas learned from Bonaventure is an idea of well saying that there's a kind of aptitudinal inherence. It, accidents normally, they have an aptitude to inhere in substance. But basically crafting out uh, in parentheses an exception uh, to the philosophical understanding of Aristotle for the sole purpose of the Eucharist. Basically saying, it's not as if God is, is uh, doing reinventing all of nature for the Eucharist, but it's just saying, well, we, got, we have to change our understanding of nature slightly in order to account for this true miracle, which is the Eucharistic conversion, because there's no other way that this can happen, but we just have to understand nature slightly differently. So a hat tip from St. Thomas to St. Bonaventure on this one. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Well, once again, thank you, Father Dominic, for your lecture. Can we give him another round of applause?